Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. As humans, talking openly to each other is one of the key tools we have to gain knowledge, to seek the truth, to foster curiosity, to exchange and explore ideas, to see nuance, to ask big questions, to defend individual liberty, to resist ideology and tribalism, to heal and develop, to glean insight, to learn from history, to change our minds. And in that spirit, I believe that each guest has important information and stories to share. This show is also a deeply personal project for me to learn, to grow, to reduce my own ignorance, to try to make me a better human being and a better citizen. And it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Bruce Poulter. Bruce is an MDMA therapist, trainer, and clinical supervisor. During our conversation, Bruce talks about MDMA as a therapy, his years as a practitioner, the experience of such therapy for patients, its hope for helping people work through PTSD, and the MAPS clinical trials that aim to legalize MDMA therapy in the U.S. by 2023. It is my belief that MDMA therapy has the potential to transform our society by giving hope to those who are experiencing chronic suffering, and it is also my view that such therapy may have far-reaching healing capacity to those suffering from mild or low-level abiding trauma, to couples who are struggling, to people who are interested in the possibilities of human well-being and the human mind. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Bruce. All right, Bruce. Well, first, I just want to say thanks for having me into your home. Um, I've been wanting to do this for a very long time, as you know. Uh, It's great to meet you. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I look forward to our conversation. Me as well. Uh, As I mentioned before we started recording, I like to stick to basic open-ended questions. So um, I'd love to start maybe with your a little bit of your personal history in terms of your initial exposure to um, maybe MDMA specifically and what you initially learned about it, knew about it, read about it, that even piqued your interest, um, in pursuing therapy related to this drug at some point in your life. Yeah, there's two parts to that. One, my first actual personal experience with it was actually here in Boulder. Um, I was in my mid thirties and I Hmm. came to a wedding of Hmm. a friend of mine and and uh, so that was my first um, personal experience with it. And then um, fast forward to 1999, my family moved to uh, Madrid, Spain. Hmm. And my wife, Marcelo Talara, was, the, was one of the therapists that was part of the first government-approved MDMA study for PTSD. And, um, and so I got to see firsthand the as a witness, basically this, this kind of shift that ha- would happen for people who are really struggling and that you could actually change this, this level of suffering in a pretty, an incredibly short amount of time that was very different than traditional therapy. So that was my first um, therapeutic exposure to it. And then I just was, um, because my wife was involved with it, she had a very severe case of um, PTSD and was given MDMA recreationally in an unsafe setting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that began, 
And then she was given MDMA in a therapeutic setting, and it completely turned her experience of living around so that she actually could decided that she wanted to live. Hmm. So that kind of, um, and then, you know, watching how it's affected her life, both in terms of um, how it completely changed. It, it, it doesn't eliminate what happens to people, but it really it changes actually how you relate to what happened to you. So instead of it being, you know, all the things that we know about PTSD, the, the dissociation, the triggers, the, the experience of oneself that you can't actually trust your body, um, you know, your feelings, your, you know, when somebody gets triggered, they are either right back into those traumatic events and those experiences, or they are, have dissociated to where they would go when those things were happening as a, you know, as a real safety measure for them. And so to try to live a life where um, you're not sure when your body's going to get hijacked, um, so to have some of the the symptoms of PTSD, the intensity, the frequency, the duration of those symptoms diminished to where you can actually engage in the world is a whole different world. So it was. So those are my you know my experiences just as a starting point. And it sounds like the, the wedding experience you were mentioning in your mid thirties when you tried uh-huh. it for the first time was that. Did did that experience for you personally give you an indication of the potential therapeutic benefits of the drug, or was it more just something fun no. to try? No, that was completely recreational. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> I want to clarify yeah. the terms, a term that you've mentioned yeah. a couple of times, uh, PTSD. Um, I think in our culture that is fairly wide, widely known as a, um, an often experienced trauma for people coming back from wartime, but it's not unique necessarily to wartime for people who don't know anything about PTSD or interested in it. What are we talking about when we say that acronym? What, what, what does it mean? How how do we know someone is experiencing it? Yeah. So it literally stands for post-traumatic stress, uh, PTSD disorder. Yeah. And, it can happen from any cause. Um, so in the studies that we do here and that, you know, MAPS sponsors, we work with people who have PTSD from any cause. So it doesn't matter. Um, family of origin trauma, um, medical procedure, trauma related to medical procedures, um, you know, abuse and neglect, uh, sexual assault, um, I mean, the list is, you know, the the list is painfully long in terms of the causes of, of, you know, humans are incredibly, um, you know, they have a tremendous capacity for goodness, but there's some people out there that are really suffering and do just these kind of horrific things to one another, to, you know, to our fellow human beings. And so, um, What, um, and so the things that happen for people when they've been traumatized are pretty specific. You know, we can kind of there's there's um, categorizations of these kind of responses that we 
that we really discovered in the 70s, mm. you know, we, that we were able to articulate around, specifically around Vietnam vets, yeah. right? But the truth is, PTSD was, happen was endemic in our culture already. So the sexual assaults you know, against women, you know, that's a, that was an under-understood um, and, and poorly responded to uh, practice on the part of our culture. Um, and so, because you know, the really nice thing about vets, veterans, is that um, they really brought, because of their suffering and because of the value we place on them in our society, we really, be, you know, we're forced to kind of confront with, so what is this that's happening to them? Yeah. Um, so when I refer to PTSD, it's from all the, all the ways that we traumatize one another. Mm. So it's witnessing, you know, uh, horrific events. It's, um, so. Yeah. And for people who are experiencing that kind of regardless of whether they've had traumatic events in wartime, in sexual assault experiences, mm -hmm. in any number of um, environments, as you articulated, that can that can cause this disorder. What are the symptoms? What what happens to people? How do they know yeah. they they have PTSD? Yeah. So um, there's so in our research, we use what's called the clinician cl clinician administered PTSD scale. And that is considered the gold standard hmm. for PTSD assessment. And, um, and there's a community level of scoring that has to happen for, um, for a diagnosis. And then there's a research level of score, which is much higher. Hmm. And so that's the, that's the, the measure that we use. Hmm. And so, so somebody who's been exposed to um, a traumatic event where their life was in danger. That's the first, that's one piece of the puzzle. And one of the dilemmas we find is that um, because of our, I want to back up a little bit. So there's this term disorder that's yeah. applied to it. And truthfully, it's an adaptive, humans, this is an adaptive response to a, a completely horrific event. And so I, we don't see it as a disorder per se, well, I don't see it as a disorder. I see it as a basically a healthy response to something that's completely unconscionable. And so that's a really important place to start from yeah. in terms of this, this um, understanding of, of what PTSD, what the symptoms are. Um, another another uh, of the diagnostic criteria is a dysregulation of mood or intellectual processing. <laughs> and so... Um, when somebody um, gets triggered, avoidance of things that remind the person of that traumatic event is another category. So people will, you know, specifically avoid either large crowds or they avoid um, social situations where they might get triggered. Hmm. But probably the let me just put it more less in the clinical terms and more in the day to day terms. It's that you actually can't trust your body. So, you know, we have feelings, we have our, we have our mind, which are really both very important tools for navigating the world. Yeah. And so when you can't trust your feelings to inform you about when you're, when something's coming down that you need to be careful around, um, when you lose that way of navigating the world, you're, 
mechanism for de- dealing with that is to actually isolate. Hmm. So it's it's people are really very smart about how they take care of themselves when these things have happened to them. Um, another characteristic is nightmares. Um, people have a really hard time sleeping because um, that's, you know, like there's all kinds of ideas about why that happens, but so many people struggle with, you know, recurrent uh, memories that come to them at night when they're sleeping, where they, where their sleep gets disrupted. So sleep disrupt, dysregulation is another piece of the puzzle. Hmm. Um, but I think the hardest one is actually not being able to trust themselves. And it's a disconnect from themselves specifically. So, and there's, and this is always by degree. So you have people who have, you know, we've all been, you know, we're all, one, one way of looking at this is we're all born into this world as babies. <laughs> you know, we have these, um, uh, if we were left to with minimal conditioning, you know, we'd become kind of the person who we're supposed to be. And, mm. you know, your interests are different than my interests. And that's really important. And the ability to express those interests and follow or follow the things that actually move us are really important to us as individuals. And to the extent that that gets conditioned, you know, by our family of origin, by the community we grew up in, by social forces, economic forces, you know, political forces, those things all condition us. And then if you put on top of that a traumatic event, so a sexual assault, um, being exposed to you know the, the nightmare scenarios that soldiers are exposed to in this world that we live in, um, then that has another, adds another layer of conditioning. And so um, what makes it difficult then for people to navigate the world when you have PTSD is that then these things called triggers happen. Mm. So, you know, you'd be driving down the street and all of a sudden, like, you'll see, you catch something out of the corner of your eye, like a shadow or something, and that'll take you back to that event. Or, um, you know, this happens actually pretty often for folks that have been in war situations. Like, they'll be driving along and there'll be a thump, and that takes them right back to that, to, to, you know, some explosion or some event that happened while they were in service to the, well, it's hard to say who they were in service to, but, um, but, you know, ostensibly to, you know, to do their duty, to do the, the thing that they were hired, not hired, but yes, hired actually, because it's, it's an all volunteer army. Yeah. Um, so, but I think the most difficult thing with PTSD is this dis- disconnection from self. You've been doing this work for a long time. And I'm wondering when you have people who come to see you who are interested in pursuing some sort of medicinal therapy to try to help them, if you almost have a, a, a trustworthy intuition fairly quickly about whether or not they would fit the requirements or the definition of having PTSD to qualify them for some of these studies, is that does that happen rather quickly for you? Do you feel like you get a sense of identification with someone you can identify someone who has PTSD fairly quickly given your expertise and experience? And if so, what, what do you notice that is signaling that to you and your, in yourself? 
Yeah, most people, it's clear, are incredibly contracted when they come into us. And it's interesting, the, we have uh, study coordinators, you know, which is our, our, they do a lot of the data entry and, and, uh, and you know, getting us, you know, making the whole system work, you know, we're indebted to, to what they do. And one of the things that they, and they, so they see somebody coming in the office, right? And they watch them, you know, walk down the hall and go into the, and meet with a therapist. And then they see them three and a half months later. And how they present is so different in three and a half months. Like they're standing upright. They, they actually will look in the office and they'll say, hey, aren't you, uh, you know, aren't you Amanda? Um, aren't you Michelle? You know, it's like, and, um, and so a person that comes to us in the, before we've done anything with them is incredibly, they're shut down, they're fearful, they're contracted. They're like, is this safe? Is this person safe? Bruce, are you safe? Yeah. You know, can I trust you? Um, and, you know, as, as the, the story unfolds, you begin to really connect. For me, I connect, you know, very, really quite personally with people around this. Um, and, uh, so that would be the overall description, I would say, is that it's they're really contracted. They live very, very protected lives to the best of their ability. Um, they don't go out in the world. Um, you know, they they track everything. So, you know, when you move something in your office, they notice because yeah. that's how they they that's how they've kept learned to keep themselves safe. I want to highlight something that you said, which I think is revelatory and not particularly well understood about PTSD, which uh, I think you said that it's essentially an adaptation. Yeah. It's a, it's an understandable reaction to yeah. trauma. Yep. Um, if you could kind of highlight that again, speak or maybe, you know, underline that point, um, what do we know about that, right? I mean, what is the rationale in the reaction that soldiers, sexual assault victims produce in themselves after experiencing something traumatic? You just use the word contracting, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. That it's, it's, it, it, I don't know if that's the same as uh, disassociating from the world, but it seems like a defense mechanism for what had happened to them yeah. that was so yeah. traumatic. Yeah. So people come up with the most remarkable ways to work with these things and it's completely i mean the strategies that people come up with is are absolutely phenomenal how you know how people really survive these completely unconscionable situations that they're in um and so for example we we're working with somebody recently who who made this statement they said you know i want to be loved and not dependent. I don't want to be dependent. <laughs> and, you know, I was walking home the other day and, I, and I, I thought, okay, yeah, the first part makes sense to me. And then all of a sudden I went, wait a second. This is somebody who was um, in intense family violence um, perpetrated upon, you know, all the kids by the father. And so for this person growing up, being dependent on their family was dangerous, just flat out dangerous. And so I went, oh, of course. 
yes, then here's this person as an adult. I do not want to be dependent on anybody. Yeah. Right. So that's, you know, one of, you know, myriad examples of how people um, kind of come up with these ways of um, managing these situations. And it's, you know, if, so I always have a, no, actually, I don't have a choice anymore. I, I just don't pathologize, <laughs> you know. So, you know, we have this thing called the DSM five, yeah. right? Yeah. And for me, it's 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 a helpful tool. It's a description of territory, but it doesn't tell me anything about how the person actually is. Mm. And one of the things that's remarkable about MDMA assisted therapy is that the solution that people come up with in the process of working over this three and a half, four and a half month period of time that we have together is completely specific and unique to them and unique to their, how they were traumatized. And so even people who were, so if we can look at vets, you know, who are kind of working with similar issues, how each of them solves that is completely specific to their experience. Hmm. And so it's, you know, from a therapy standpoint, you know, like we always talk about how important it is to individualize care. Well, in this model and in this process, care gets individualized hmm. because just the nature of people working with, working through how they um, responded to their trauma. Hmm. And it's different. And so for me as a therapist, I can't actually predict. I know we're going to start, we're starting at point A and we're getting, going to get to point B and I have no idea how we're going to get there. Hmm. It's completely nonlinear. It's completely unpredictable. Um, and unique to the individual. And unique to the individual. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd love to get back to your biography of what brought you to this table and maybe more specific, more specifically what brought you to the therapeutic work that you are doing now. You mentioned that you're, wife at one time was kind of the poster child for the very nascent field related to this type of therapeutic work. Um, for you specifically, how did you get from trying MDMA in your mid thirties for the first time at a wedding to spending a decent chunk of your life's energy and time, um, de being dedicated towards trying to help people with this medicine in a therapy setting? Yeah, you know, years ago, I mean, when I was in my 20s, like, I, therapy was interesting to me. Yeah. Um, but it was too slow. I mean, for me, for my internal pace, it was just too slow. I knew that I would not be good at it because just my internal pace, yeah. like, you know. And so when the possibility revealed itself that you could actually use these, you know, in this case, we're talking about MDMA, but there's this, you know, there's psilocybin, there's ibogaine, there's ayahuasca, there's all these remarkable medications out there. You know, medication is not even the right word. It's like all these substances out there that we can use as catalysts for change and, and to bring awareness to the individual. Um, and so the power of them kind of like caught my attention and the pace actually mm -hmm. is what is it was what then changed my process i went yeah. oh i can do this <laughs> this i can do this is my pace yeah. um you know so so that's the for me that's the personal part of it um you know on, on a you know my 
my nervous system is a classic ADHD system. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm extreme in that respect. So for me to sit still is one of the hardest things to do in the world. Mm -hmm. But as I've gotten older, it's gotten easier. (laughs) Um, So that, so those kind of play, I had to, you know, I had to wait for my system to kind of settle down a bit to where I could actually then um, manage the, um, the patience that it takes to be in a room with somebody mm. and, uh, you know, hear things unfold. Mm. I would imagine for you to begin to dedicate, given how hard it was for you, you had to be pretty convinced that this, there was something, there was a there there. There was something about MDMA that you thought was efficacious or uh, could really very quickly help people get better. What did you learn, right? I mean, for for people who are listening to this that have only heard about MDMA as a street drug, uh, as a party drug, have Mm -hmm. never heard about it related to Mm -hmm. any successful therapeutic option for people who are suffering, what changed your mind? What informed you that this was something worth investigating? That's a really good question. Uh, so the first part of it is personal. So having a personal relationship with somebody whose life was fundamentally changed for the better. Mm-hmm. And this person took it, I mean, I'm talking about my wife now, in, you know, before it was rescheduled as a, a Schedule One drug. Mm-hmm. So when it was legal um, and was and received it therapeutically. So I think for all of us as humans, having that personal connection is what really, that's one of the most powerful influences and ways to change our, our understanding. Um, I never, you know, sadly I knew I learned early on not to believe what our government said about these things. So, um, and where did that come from? You know, growing up in the sixties, um, you know, the, just the lies, the deceit, the, the subterfuge that, um, you know, that is part of, of society, of our society. Um, so I've always been a skeptic. Um, and, and I, I guess then the next piece, so I had that, you know, you know, the, the personal experience and then at one of the MAPS um, conferences, this was in San Jose, it was like in, I don't know, 2002, 2004, I went to this talk on the use of um, Ibogaine mm-hmm. for people who, who were um, struggling with uh, you know, using too much of, in this case, um, opiates. And people were, it was like, here was this another story of people actually, in a very short period of time, having this transformative experience and, and from the standpoint of that they're given this, um, this substance, Ibogaine, which is really challenging, difficult for, the, for anybody. But what's really powerful about it is they actually see the moment, you know, so many of the folks that were at that, um, uh, at that conference that, you know, had been through the Ibogaine process spoke about how they saw the moment at which they became addicted. Like, and it wasn't the first time they shot up Hmm. or they used, you know, they smoked opium or whatever. 
it was something completely unrelated. And so they went, oh, that's how it started. And so then that's such a, an important piece of information about how to work with yourself, about what, um, what it is to, you know, to, to not be getting your needs met in a, in a sense is one way of looking at addiction. Um, that they could then, you know, begin to then transform their lives. And the other part about Ibogaine that was so powerful is then for six months, people have no cravings whatsoever. And so it's, it's this, you know, so it's, it's a health and wellness model. It's mm. like, so how did this happen? You know, I'm, I'm not going to say, you know, so much of our, of our approach to these substances is punitive. Mm. Um, and, you know, you'll need to bring me back because I can go off. I mean, this is, it's really difficult for me because, and especially in a capitalist society, which really values, you know, which is kind of based on this idea of the free flow of information. Yeah. So we really restrict information. So, for example, in the United States, you can, if you have a substance that you want to use safely, that the government says is illegal, you can send it to a lab and they'll tell you what's in it, but they won't tell you the dose. They won't tell you the concentration. So this is a basic public health issue that we can't, we're not willing to protect people who use these things that the government says is, um, has no you know, medical value. Hmm. Even the, so if we go back to MDMA, so in 1985 and 1984, the, you know, the government held these hearings on, you know, what, what do we do with this, this party drug called MDMA or yeah. ecstasy or molly? And the the judge that heard all the testimony did not recommend that it become a Schedule One drug. In fact, that's not what he recommended. But it then goes to the FDA or NIADA, I can't remember which. Then they're the ones who then scheduled it as a Schedule One drug. So they overruled all the data and all the information, all the science, basically. And they said, nope, you guys are wrong. This is a policy issue, and we are going to um, nip it in the bud and make it illegal. Yeah. I want to talk about the anecdote, as much as you're comfortable speaking about it, that it does sound like was formative for you, which is watching your wife go through a very positive experience with this stuff. Yeah. Um, again, in as much detail as you're comfortable speaking about it, what did you notice in her? Were, were you guys already, were you two already married at the time? And, and what, what kind of changes specifically did you notice in her personality, disposition, mentality, et cetera, that uh, was the result of her going through these sort of therape therapeutic settings? Well, she did it before we were married. So yeah. I didn't even know her. So this okay. is like uh, 1984, 1983. And if you, um, Rick talks about it in his TED talk actually a little mm. bit because he's the, he was the therapist who gave her then the MDMA yeah. and it was pivotal for both of them. Yeah. Um, and so I, I know, so let's see. So then I, we met then about 12, 14 years later after that. And so, um, and so if you, some people who've been through this process with MDMA assisted therapy, We'll say that they're cured of PTSD. I would never take that position. Hmm. Um, what it does is it, through the process, for most people, it decreases their, again, all with all of their symptoms, the frequency, 
the intensity and the duration. So that when somebody gets triggered and they dissociate, so instead of being dissociated for two weeks, three weeks, a month, it's minutes, hopefully, hmm. or an hour or a day. So these huge shifts. So that, so that it was like hearing about what her life was like before actually doing this therapy and then hearing what, how, what her life was like afterwards and then knowing her then you know as i got to know her 15 years after that whole process and still struggling with you know the symptoms associated with that trauma that happened to her as a young woman hmm. i think i've heard that that talk Mm-hmm. Um, and if I remember correctly, I mean, she went through something horrific Yes, that if I'm remembering correctly was causing suicidal yes. ideation. And oh, yeah. I, I think she was essentially on the cusp of trying to kill herself. Oh yes. Yep. Absolutely. Um, Rick and Rick, when you say Rick, Rick Doblin, I yes. assume, right? Mm-hmm. So Rick Doblin, who the founder of maps, uh, at the time, I suppose was an underground therapist, um, at that point, it'd be above ground because it I was see. legal. Okay, okay. <laughs> it hadn't been it hadn't been scheduled at that point. How did they connect? To it was even a personal allow connection. They had known each other. Yeah, yeah. And was she familiar with the potential benefits of doing an MDMA therapy, or he suggested it and provided the option to her? Yeah, she had because of her trauma. She had been. Um, She'd been hospitalized twice, I think, you know, for because she was at risk to hurt herself. It was sexually assault, sexual assault, right? I mean, that that was, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty horrific. Okay, it was nightmarish, yeah. actually. Okay, yeah, yeah. Did it very quickly become apparent that this was something potentially life saving to her? It was the first time she could imagine living, actually that she could see a future. I completely understand. This still is an extremely emotional subject, I'm sure, for you and your entire family. I also have to think, given how much it helped her, that must be at least a large part of the reason why she felt called or wanted to get involved in this work to try to help other people. Yep. Right. I mean, yep. it, it sounds like she was in essentially a hopeless place yep. um, where she didn't want to go on living, had basically decided she couldn't go on living and somehow made it out of that black tunnel. Yeah, I. it's remarkable to me how people survive the situations they do. And, you know, she's one of the people who survived because and we know a lot of people don't. And so. To go from wanting to die to wanting to live is a big step, right? And I completely understand why somebody would want to die. I com- I understand that. The suffering, none of us can actually understand the suffering that some any of us are going through at any point in time. And, um, and people's, you know, we, we still, you know, you know the statistic for, in, in this case, for vets. Yeah. We're still losing, you know, 17 vets a day as I understand it. Um, and, you know, so the suffering, the suffering is, is, it just seems so trite to say it's real. It's, it's so devastating. And so to, 
to go from that place to actually being able to see a reason for and a possibility of a life that's fulfilling and satisfying and you know that we were granted when we were born into this world like to get back to that place i mean there's there's you know and our research shows that you know in our most recent studies the first half of our phase 3 study with 90 participants 66% no longer meet criteria for PTSD yeah i mean that's double what you know any therapy out there um that you know has been that's been evaluated you know the results are just are absolutely stunning yeah I want to get into the studies a little bit later in terms okay. of what, what you have learned, what your team has learned, what MAPS has learned. I also, you know, in the buildup to that, I think for people who are just f for the first time getting exposed to knowing anything about this substance in a medical setting, it seems almost too good to be true. Like it's, something magical right i mean what is this drug and what is it doing to the brain i'm sure there's still massive mysteries there that we don't know about as best we understand it right now what what is happening to people when they ingest this substance so it's it fills people with resource so if we go back to that place where you're incredibly suffering you want to take your own life and you want to just end it mm. To experience resource, to experience wind in your sails, to experience possibility, to experience like there are all these problems that you're struggling with and there's actually a possible solution, that's MDMA. Mm. It's pro-social. Like people generally with PTSD are pretty shut down. They actually are able to engage. They want to engage. And... Um, so those are probably the two biggest, um, well, there's a third one actually, which is your fear, that your level of fear gets modulated so that you can still experience fear, but it doesn't redline, it doesn't go through the roof. So that you can then approach these things that have happened to you um, as an individual and safely re-experience them with the resource of the medicine, with the resource of the therapist in the room. And so it is like magic. I mean, it, it, this is a little, this is very, it's strange for me to I mean, listen to myself and, as I'm saying this. Yeah. Um, and it's also, it's also, I want to be clear here, it's not for everyone. <laughs> this is not the solution to PTSD. The solution to PTSD is actually at a, at a cultural level. We need to change our behavior, but that's, but this is one very promising way to approach something that is endemic in our society. Yeah. So those are, so, you know, then there's the kind of, you know, in the recreational sense, there's the, you know, the kind of joke that, I mean, it's a painful joke, but it's like the, the teenager who's, and so I need to be really clear here. We're talking about adults using MDMA in a therapeutic setting. And so I'll stop there on that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, to, and to get specific, when we are talking about uh, that setting, right, the, the professional therapeutic setting, yes. um, 
talk to me about the dosage amount, the duration, yeah. the setting, right? This is your world. You live in this world yeah. and have, have for a while now. For people that don't know, you know, potential therapists that might be listening to this or people who are just curious about how to do this safe, as safely as possible, mm-hmm. as professionally as possible, what are the parameters here we're talking about? Yeah. So we have a whole screening process, you know, we're doing, so we're doing research. So people have to fit into this kind of pigeonhole set of criteria. And so let's assume they make it through that whole process and we have, they get a diagnosis of PTSD. We've confirmed that through the caps in, in, in order to prepare them. So they do three, 90-minute sessions, and there's two therapists in the room. And and it's really kind of getting a... kind of be, trying to get an understanding of what their experience of, of the, their version of PTSD is, because everybody has their own version. So it's it's that real, real personal, individualized view of who this person is. And then for the therapists, it's really... I mean, it's my job to be worthy of their trust. So I need to do everything I can to earn that. And because we know, for, the research is so solid on this, that the therapeutic relationship, the therapeutic mm. alliance, is fundamental to the work that you can get done in a therapy therapy setting. So, um, so we start with those three sessions. And then... So we've addressed, answered all their questions. We've addressed the safety issues. We've come up with, we prepared them for what their, what the session will be like. So then on the day of the dosing, then it's an eight hour session. Again, it's the two therapists. So the therapists remain the same throughout the whole Mm. process. And, um, and because it's a, um, we're doing research, and the gold standard for this research is double-blind placebo control. So half the people in the study are assigned to the therapy-only group, and half the people are assigned to the MDMA group. And no, no, none of us know who gets assigned where. So I'm going to just kind of focus on the folks that get that MDMA. Yeah. So then, um, then the dose that we give them in the very first session is 80 milligrams. That's followed um, 90 minutes later, roughly with half of that. Mm. So in this case, it'd be 40 milligrams. Mm. The second experiential session, they have the option to go up to 120 milligrams and, um, and then half of that again, which 90 minutes later. And so in the eight hour session, we have music playing and, and the music is there as it is really trying to match whatever their state is. So as the onset of the medicine, is happening, we try to match the music to that. And so, um, and it, in the ideal, an ideal session is the person is relating to us half the time and half the time they're having a relationship with themselves completely where they're listening to music. Either they might have headphones on or they don't have to and eye shades if it helps them to be inside and they feel safe and and they kind of go in and out of this state of being with themselves, you know, which for somebody with PTSD is really, it's dangerous. Yeah. 
right? And so for the, I mean, I, I'm just amazed that people are willing to risk being with themselves given their experience. You know, most of the people, I think the average amount of time people in our studies have had PTSD is around 14, 15 years. So they have a lot of time where being with themselves is really unsafe. So they're, it's remarkable that people can actually go into that place. And, and the thing that happens, the thing that's different, um, also another piece of the effect of MDMA is that that kind of critical part of us that judges and says, oh, you know, you shouldn't have done that, or, you know, you got in that situation because of so-and-so, it's like that voice gets really quiet. And so you don't have that that inner critic so powerfully, you know, judging you. Hmm. So it, it, it's the perfect setup for, um, for people to actually really look at how they've been affected by the things that have happened in their lives. Hmm. And so I, you know, you get, you know, we know people's histories, but where they actually focus in the session is a complete mystery. It's, it's, quite remarkable and we trust people like what comes up in the present moment is what we follow so we don't you know i might think that it's really important that they address issues with their mother or their father or, you know their uh i mean the list is endless hmm. but that that's not it what's it is like whatever shows up in that moment hmm. then we work with and sometimes it shows up as feelings, sometimes it shows up as memories, sometimes it shows up as these kind of involuntary, spontaneous movements. Um, and in a session, people, some people, and it's fairly common, people will go back to these places where they were being, where the trauma took place, and they can go back into them from a very safe place. So we don't, you know, like a lot of work with, um, in the absence of a medicine like MDMA with trauma, for people who are traumatized, you have to be really careful about this, what they refer to as kind of the zone of, of tolerance. Mm. And it's very difficult to re-traumatize somebody who is under the influence of MDMA. You have to work really hard to do it. It's... MDMA is very forgiving in that respect. So, for example, if I make a suggestion for somebody who's under the influence of MDMA, if it doesn't make sense to them, they just blow me right off. Mm. And so it's protective that way. It protects them from me, and it helps them to stay focused on what they need to focus on. Mm. And so we're there to help them navigate the places where they tend to get stuck. So people will tend to loop in places where they're you know, the trauma is just too intense. And so it's like, so we help them to figure out what needs to happen in that moment. So maybe it's actually not time to actually work with that trauma. Hmm. So let's just pause. Let's come back. And we really, so um, it's not for the faint of heart. And it's about people moving into the trauma as opposed to moving away from the trauma. That's a really important distinction and it's not us as a therapist that determine that it's the participant that determines that so we really do our we do our best and it's fundamental to our work that we we track the cues that the participants giving us so that we're always following them and we don't 
We're not trying to get ahead of them. We're not trying to get them to do anything that they shouldn't be doing. Um, that they're that they have this. You know, we we say it outright. You know, you know what's best for you. You have an innate wisdom in you that knows what you need, when you need it, and how you need to go about doing that. And we are here as witness, and we are here to help you when you get stuck. Because people, you know, we're talking tough, tough territory. But what's amazing is people can do it. I mean, I can't tell you the um, the courage that people that I see in, in people. You know the uh, you know I'm, I'm getting worked up here. The their ability to go into these incredibly dark places where somebody has been doing something to them that is absolutely unconscionable. And so, it, you, you, in order to be successful with that, you really need to let, you know, let the participant set the pace for that. And if you give them the space, they will always do it, if they need to. Sometimes people don't actually have to go into these dark places. Mm. And a lot of times people do, and so we go with them. So we make sure that they feel like that they're, you know, when they're in these, um, you know, people will relive their the point of the trauma or the traumas or multiple traumas. And we always make certain that they feel that they're not, they recognize that they're not alone and that at any point in time they can pull out if they if that's what they need to do. And so when people are given a choice, it's amazing what they can do. It's absolutely amazing. I, you know, it's I'm just I'm awestruck. And so I hear horrific stories and you know about what our fellow humans do to one another and for the most part, and what makes it possible for me to keep doing that is that I see the change, how it fundamentally changes, how it fundamentally can change a person's life. You know, and so it, it's, you know, from where I sit, it's, uh, it's hard work. You know, our, our participants work their butts off. And uh, we're right there with them, and it's it's, and at the end, and so then we repeat that, so they get MDMA three times. Hmm. So it's not it's not a medicine that you give somebody and you take you know they take home with them and yeah. and they take every day. They just in you know in our within our studies and our understanding of this work, we give it to them three times, and in between each of those sessions, we the integration sessions are as important as the medicine sessions. So after we do a uh, one of these eight-hour sessions, then they either spend the night in our in our clinic mm. with a night attendant, mm. or they go home with a support person. And then they come back the next morning, and we begin to help them make sense about what happened. And then over the next, you know, two sessions, we do the same, you know, we just keep working with whatever came up. Um, the therapists are on call for twenty for those you know that you know for twenty four hours while 
you know, after that session, um, where because, um, I'm sorry, because suicidality is such a, is a, goes hand in hand with PTSD. So we're always tracking suicidal ideation and, um, because we, you know, we want people to be safe. And so, and the side effects that were that people are experiencing are the ones that we would expect: jaw tightening, mm. um, anxiety. Uh, let's see. I mean, they're they're you know lack of appetite, mm. you know, slight nausea as the medicine's coming on for some people. Um, the safety profile is absolutely is quite remarkable. Mm. Um, we haven't had any hospitalizations. So, again, it's, you know, the, you know, the sample size is small, yep. you know, in, in our phase, first half of our phase three, it was 90 folks because we got, we were shooting for a hundred, but with COVID we had to, you know, we, we shut it down early mm. with the FDA approval on um, our phase two data. So our phase two data was at the end of, immediately at the end of, you know, after the these three sessions with MDMA assisted therapy, um, when you check, do the person's uh, CAPS assessment, it was like 56% of folks no longer met criteria for PTSD. And for us in Boulder, in phase two, it was like 66%. Hmm. And, and our study was the largest at that point in time. Hmm. Um, and then, and what's amazing is now we have 15 sites across the U.S. and Canada and Israel, and um, they got even better results hmm. in phase three. And it's with ex- therapists that are don't have as much experience as the folks who did phase two. Hmm. But the best news of it all is a year later, when you go back and you assess people for their level of PTSD, that percentage increases by 10%. Hmm. So in phase two, a year later, it was then 66% of people, 67% of people no longer met criteria for PTSD. And in that year, we're doing nothing as the, you know, maps and the therapists are doing nothing. It's the person living with themselves. They keep getting better. So it's durable. And so that's, so for me, the exciting thing is the dramatic level of change that we can you can see in a person's eyes you can yeah. see in how they present um and by their report you know we also measure all these other things like um their level of depression their uh, post-traumatic growth inventory their level of dissociation we, we we track all these things and and all of them are consistent with what we're seeing in terms of the, with the caps results it's incredible stuff. I have to imagine bearing witness to that kind of transformation. Yeah. It must be, you said, I think awe inspiring or being awestruck. You know, it's an, it must be an honor to witness that. It is huge. It's absolutely huge. The role of the therapist, right? I think you mentioned there are two in there. And my yep. understanding is it's always or it tends to be a man and a woman. It's a, is that, is that not necessarily. Fortunately, we've we've gotten past that. Gotten past that. Okay. So, and for you specifically, when you're in there, you know, and it does sound a couple of things. I just took away hearing you. One, it's it's always unique. It's individualized, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and 
you really seem to allow the individual to lead and then provide mm -hmm. support when necessary. Yep. Um, how do you know there is now a place for you? You know, is it is it uh, a place for you to intervene or to speak, or is it always it's asked? the participant is, is asking you for assistance or do you have an intuition to strike up dialogue? How do you know it's time to play mm -hmm. an active mm -hmm. role in the therapy session? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and that's, it's something that all of our therapists struggle with because on the one hand, we used to call it um, being non-directive. Yeah. But the, what we noticed then is our therapists were kind of, sitting back a little too much. <laughs> and so then we changed the language to interdirected so that that it's like we're saying we're wanting you're wanting to support an interdirected process of, for the participant. So that gives you you know it gives you something okay this is what I'm supposed to do. And so and what you're doing is wow it's really it's difficult to articulate. So um, and so, and the medicine sessions are different than the integration sessions. Yeah. So the integration and preparatory sessions tend to be more like your typical psychotherapy session, mm -hmm. 90 minutes long. Yeah. In terms of interventions, um, because we're like, you know, I gave that example of if I make a suggestion to somebody who has MDMA on board and it doesn't fit, they just blow me up. Yeah. So that gives me a little bit of license to go, okay, so I can, I can try things because I know that they are protected. So I can, you know, listen to this, you know, my kind of more fringe part of my intuition. And that's actually not accurate. I, I, all of us have intuition. And so, and it's a really important part of how we can be helpful. And so sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it isn't. And so all you, you know, so we encourage people. So when you feel inspired to, to do that, you think that something would be helpful, try it, but don't, hmm. don't be attached to it. Hmm. Okay. Um, most of the time you're there as witness and you know, the, the witness role is really an under, a, it's a difficult role to be in because you're not, you know, you're, by its very nature, you're there as an observer, but you can't be a, a dispassionate yeah. observer. You have to be engaged. Yeah. So it's this quality of being present with this process that's unfolding. And you're watching this process unfold. And the participant will actually oftentimes just bring you in to their process. So, you know, this, I'm feeling this thing that came up or you'll notice that their leg starts to twitch. And so, you know, with something like that, you might say something like, you know, any kind of involuntary movement, like your leg twitching, let it twitch. <laughs> and so what we're, what we're doing is we're trying to find these, the phenomena that the person is presenting with, to notice it and then to make a distinction about whether it would be helpful to increase the intensity of that or to decrease the intensity of that. 
And so, and really it's so that to help the participant actually make that distinction. Yeah. So the first piece is to notice. And then the second piece is actually to bring awareness to the participant and let them then make the decision about whether this is an important thing that's unfolding in front of them. So it, it gets into this, you know, what I said earlier, that it's a nonlinear process. And so we have to, you have to be really on your feet about this ever-changing environment. Um, and so let me go back to the example of, so for example, if somebody's leg starts to vibrate mm -hmm. and if the participant is capable and willing to let it vibrate and shake, um, we don't know exactly what that is, but if you let it happen, it will eventually reveal what needs to what you know what's unfolding it'll give you information or it'll actually it'll resolve on its own and both are fine um because these you know like the body keeps all these books out yeah. there on trauma right yeah. the body keeps yeah. the score uh, you know there's there's this whole somatic process that you know that helps us to absorb the t you know the intensity of these trespasses that happen you know to us as individuals um so let's see if there's another example here in terms of um the intervention specifically so another a common one is that that people um are like no i don't want to go there can't go there and they'll say that out loud oh yeah they'll that say that out loud yeah. or you'll just notice that they're um you know they'll have brought up uh, you know, a topic or a subject, and then they'll back away from it. And then it'll come up again, and then they'll back away from it. And then they'll come up again, and they'll back away from it. It's like, okay. And so, again, if you give people a choice, you know, bring, you know, like I noticed that you brought this up, and you let it go. Is there, you know, is there, you know, what's happening? And so a lot of times it's just, it's simple awareness. They go, oh, oh, I have? Huh, okay. And then they can run with it. <laughs> or they go, uh-uh, not going there. Great, okay. <laughs> Got it. So I wonder, so tell me, what happened right before that? What was the, so when that, you know, yes, you know, you had that memory that, that, um, but what were we, what, what were you feeling right before that? So it's like trying to find a, a safe entry point for them to actually go into whatever it is that's trying to get their attention. Yeah. You had spoken a little bit ago about what the experience tends to be like for the participant, and I'm, I'm sure it sounds like it is always somewhat unique and different and individualized for the participant. But it, it's an eight-hour session. There's an onset and there's a crescendo, I would imagine, where the medicine is at its peak influence. You said it's, it can range in terms of what the experience is like for the participant. There can be memories, there can be feelings. Mm -hmm. uh, in your experience, is what's the most common experience like for a participant does the medicine always direct them to trauma mm -mm. is that mm. you know, half of the time what 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm wondering this for somebody who's listening to this, who is a bit captivated by this, thinks they might benefit from taking this type of therapy at some point, but is a little anxious about the uncertainty of what they are likely to experience right. during that eight hour period. Right. What, what would you say to them? It's the full range. Yeah. So it made me, you know, what, when you asked the question, it's like I, I was immediately reminded of one of our participants who, for the first two and a half, three hours, she connected with herself. She loved herself. She had never felt any positive feelings towards herself whatsoever. And she was just in this kind of beautific state for two and a half hours. And, you know, I remember turning to my co-therapist and going, well, are we, is this okay? You know, <laughs> and it was just, it was, it was absolutely wonderful. And so that became the foundation for her then to move forward in terms of exploring what happened you know, in terms of her traumas. Mm. So the positive so-called, you know, positive feelings are completely individual. Like, you know, what's positive to you and to me is, can be very different, but so, however you define that as an individual, those experiences are are absolutely an important part of this work, yeah. and and to anchor that, there is an, uh, uh, one of my our participants from phase three. There would be these moments in the in the sessions where he'd be sitting, just like he'd take this um, very regal posture, and he just and he'd just be like smiling. And, um, and, uh, you know, this is somebody who was sexually assaulted as a, as a young, young boy. And, and anyway, and so he was just like, he was in this like beautific mo these moments in the sessions. And, you know, I would, I would point it out to them. And then it was like, it wasn't until the very end, like, I think it was the last session. He said, you know, Bruce, I really appreciate you noticing those mm. states I was in because, um, yeah, I'm going to get choked up. Um, because that's actually how God wants us to be. <laughs> God wants us to feel really good. God wants us to feel good about ourselves. And in those moments, I was experiencing what I met, what I understand to be God's wish for me. And this is a man uh, from the Mormon tradition. <laughs> and it was like, until he had said that, I had noticed it and, and brought it to you know, his attention. And, but it wasn't until that moment that I went, oh, God, that's amazing. <laughs> so, yes, what we're, you know, people come to us to work with trauma, but we're working with whatever comes up, all that comes up, and the the so-called um, life-affirming. I mean, it's so weird to say life-affirming positive emotions are as important as the difficult ones. Yeah, and so it really helps to fill out the picture of what it is to be a human being in this world. Hmm. I'm going to add some context to this conversation. You correct me, please. At any point that uh, if any of the information I, I convey is incorrect, so. We've talked uh, about phase two, phase three trials, mm -hmm. and I, I probably should have mentioned this a little bit ago. So we're talking about, if I'm understanding this correctly, the phase two and phase three trials that are 
have been directed by MAPS, the Correct. organization. And these phase two and phase three trials are specific to, and I should mention, are legally authorized yep. MDMA therapy sessions for people who have uh, scientifically validated P PTSD. Correct. Um, my understanding is that MAPS was granted breakthrough status yep. to be able to take a, what I think is still a category one drug, yep. schedule one drug, schedule one drug and provide it to people in a clinical setting because they were able to convince government agencies of the likely benefits of these kind of medicinal therapy sessions for people who without that option are really at the end of their rope are struggling, have no other option. And once this breakthrough status was given a phase one, two, and I think recently phase three trial was authorized by the FDA to be able to take place, analyze the results and potentially if the results go a certain way could lead to a legal option for people in the U S to be able to access these drugs. I'm sure some of that was incorrect, but I would love that. That's my understanding. You tell me what the, what the specifics are there. Yeah. So phase one is typically safety. So, um, we had to do that. That was 2000 in yeah, 2000, early 2000. Then phase two is where you then look at safety and efficacy. And so we completed that. Um, and that's where the data was then presented to the FDA. And at that point, they, that's when they gave us what is referred to as breakthrough drug therapy status. Mm -hmm. And what that basically, so if you think of Ebola. So when the Ebola outbreak first happened, there were no drugs that were approved for Ebola. Mm -hmm. And so what the FDA did is looked at all the kind of drugs that were in process and went, oh, this is, this is the most, this one has the best profile for actually working with an Ebola, but it's not been approved yet. So what we're going to do is we're going to give it breakthrough drug therapy status. So it's for a condition that is life-threatening, where there are no other available treatments, viable treatments mm -hmm. out there, and that the, the drug, the medicine in question shows uh, promise. Mm -hmm. And so it was on the basis of our, our phase two data results hmm. that, you know, rich, so immediately after um, treatment, 56%, and then a year later, 66%, 67%. So they looked at that data and said, okay, this is real, this is promising. This is really good news. Small historically, I would, I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah, uh, historically, sorry. I would imagine it, it, it's the best result that has yet been studied in terms of its efficacy for helping people who have clinical PTSD. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the community standard is around 30%. So whatever the modality is, you know, uh, exposure therapy, CPT, uh, EMDR, et cetera, you know, we're all, they're all running around 30%. Mm. And even in our, so the folks get assigned. So, so, then I'll jump ahead to phase three. So we're in the midst of phase three. Hmm. And interestingly, this is where most drug, um, this is where most drugs that are going through this process actually fail in phase three trials. Hmm. So, um, and the, f we were very nervous about the first, and we broke phase three into two studies um, for a whole variety of reasons. But, um, and so when we looked at the, 
at the data from our phase three, it was even better than our phase two. Oh my God, I can still remember that, the meeting when we actually saw the results and it was like all of us were just stunned. And, um, and so, so concurrently with our phase three trial, then we've been given permission to give MDMA to anybody who has a diagnosis of PTSD. The problem is that um, MAPS as an organization, I mean, it's, it's growing exponentially and we just can't keep up with the demand. Yeah. So we have, you know, we have studies going across basically all over the world now. So we have studies that are, we started in Europe because we're, we're taking MDMA through the European drug approval process right now. Hmm. We're taking it, we have all the sites that we have in the U.S., Canada, Israel. There, um, and so, and then we have these, you know, what we refer to as expanded access sites, but we can't get them operational yet because we just don't, we're, we're pedaling as fast as we can. Yeah. And, and then, you know, then we have a whole host of consultants and advisors and, you know, they, they say, you know, be careful, go slowly. And so, you know, for me, um, on the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm completely impressed by the data. And so if we have continue to get the same results in the second half of phase three, then I'm very optimistic that the FDA will give us um, prescriptive authority to then be able to prescribe in a therapeutic setting, MDMA for PTSD specifically. Yeah. And our target, I think, is the middle of, uh, of 2023. And currently, without g being granted that legal ability, it isn't fully legal for people to access Correct. A P uh, MDMA in a therapy setting at, at present. So potentially within two years, if all things go accordingly, hopefully mm -hmm. well, Roughly speaking, two years from now, somebody listening to this audio conversation might be able to call their psychiatrist, get in touch with someone in their local community and have access to be able to go through this. So this is a difficult situation. So upon approval, assuming that we get approval um, based on our data, then only folks who have been trained by MAPS, will be able to administer MDMA. Yeah. So, in anticipation of this, um, we're training, you know, our goal is to train 20,000 therapists in the next five years yeah. to do this work specifically, because it's a different approach than conventional therapy. And so, um, you know, and we're, you know we're, we're doing the best we can to to in preparation, in anticipation of um, FDA approval. <laughs> and again, it's not for everybody. It's, you know, our results are good. Our, our results are remarkable, but we still have a ways to go. So we, we need to be cautiously optimistic about um, where we'll be in, in two and a half years. Yeah. Is there anywhere in the world currently where this therapeutic option is legal? No. It's one of the problems with the U.S. Uh, like when you yeah. sign a you know a trade deal with the U.S., you have to agree to the, the U.S.'s drug policies. So no. Yeah. 
you've said this a couple of times that this is not for everyone. Correct. I would love for you to speak if you can about who in your judgment, this isn't really not for. Yeah. You know, it's, it's what's actually plagued me because I would really, you know, I would really like, you know, so we're at, our data says we're at 66%. So that means 33% yes. are not responding as well as we would like. They're actually responding. We have very few non-responders. So that's interesting in and of itself. So for me as a clinician, I'd like to be able to predict a little bit better about who's going to fit in that 33%, hmm. just in terms of setting expectations. And then post-approval, one of the things that, I mean, we're doing a three-session model, a three-MDMA session model, a month apart, roughly. Yeah. Post-approval, we're anticipating that the FDA will, we don't know what they'll allow. Um, but we're hoping that then, that we can really individualize care in that setting, which is meaning that the sessions will be paced on an individual's process, not this thing, you know, we have these windows that people, we have to do, do each of these sessions within because of the protocol. Yeah. So post-approval, should we get there, we'll have some, we'll be able to be even more responsive. And so, and we're doing the CAPS assessment after each experiential session, each of the, you know, when I say experiential, I mean the MDMA session. So, so that we'll have a sense about where in the process we get the most change. And so then, do we need two sessions? Do we need three sessions? There's just a whole lot of questions that we need to have, an- that it'd be helpful to have answers to. Um, I think that in terms of, of um, you know, I think that for individuals, they really need to look at the read the reports about people's experience and and see if that's something that fits for them. Um, you know, for a lot of folks, and this was definitely true for me for a lot of my life, the thought of taking sub- a substance that would um, disrupt my normal way of being yeah. was just, just not an option. I mean, I, like my mind was just too chaotic. I just, I didn't want that messed with. I was having enough trouble navigating the world. And so I think that, you know, you, you, um, you want to inform yourself. So basically what I'm, how I'm answering your question is to say that people should really self-select. They should really actually look into it and see if that's something they can see themselves doing. <laughs> and then talk to people who have actually done the therapy. And then, and then with that information, um, make a decision based on that. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the other piece that's really important in this work is actually free will. So, you know, I, I'm very specific about people. If you come, you know, like, so we're all set to do the experiential session, the session where you get the, the medicine or not. If your instinct is to not take the medicine, don't take it, please. It's totally fine. So we keep reinforcing this, this the importance of the person really being able to say what is true for them and what matters to them. And we honor that. Yeah. And so it, you know, so that nobody should ever feel like they're being coerced into anything, you know, because most of these people have been coerced in one way or another and couldn't get out of the situation. So it's, it's corrective in so many ways. Um, 
But, uh, you know, it's, it's a really important question that we need to find, we need more information on. Because yeah. I can't actually say. Yeah. It sounds like these studies are really in their infancy and that it's possible with enough time and research that calibrating how you do these ses- sessions, what the exact ingredients might be, it could increase the efficacy over time. Yeah. There, there's hope that, you know, the numbers may actually go up once the knowledge goes up. Yes. Yeah. You know, one other point I, I uh, wanted to make that I thought might be important for people who are listening to this and maybe at some point in their life might consider doing something like this is that, and you correct me if I'm wrong about this, my understanding is that unlike some of the classical psychedelics, MDMA is not technically a psychedelic. It's an empathogen. One of the components of that being that there is no ego dissolution. That you, as you understand yourself, while you are having a an alteration in your your uh, typical existence yeah. are not gone. Correct. Right. There is a degree of agency. Absolutely. Remains. Absolutely. And, and that's the beauty of MDMA specifically. So that's another one of those attributes of it, which is that it doesn't generate anything that is not you. So a feeling comes up, it's your feeling. Mm. It doesn't cause you to, to experience anything that actually is different from you. And so it's, and so it's not, you know, it doesn't, you know, very, very few people, small, incredibly small number of people actually have slight visual distortions. So things will be a little sparkly, mm. but that's, that's very unusual. Your sense of, your sense of touch is heightened. Um, so a lot of your senses are heightened a bit, um, but it doesn't, you know, more to the point, it actually reveals the actual, the actual person, not the person who's been conditioned, not the person who's been distorted. Your true self actually shows up, and that's incredibly exciting. You know, from a, to watch that, to see that, yeah. to see that, you know, the the person emerge who was who was there before that they got um, they had these things happen to them yeah. um, you know it, it's it's such a powerful thing to reconnect with our with ourselves and um, and to watch it happen is a huge gift yeah a recovery yeah a recovering of your inner self your, which, you know, what in psychological terms we refer to as your authentic self. Yeah. It's like the, the, this thing that, and so, so this kind of continuum of, yes, there's this distortion, which, you know, which is kind of what I refer to what PTSD is. It's a distortion to who we are. It's a, you know, it's, as I said before, it's a disconnection from ourselves. An adaptation. An adaptation. And so then you can, what's remarkable about this work from my standpoint is, you know, we're not, we oftentimes work directly with the trauma, but then we also just work with developmental things. So like becoming a better person, mm. becoming who you actually want to be instead of how you were conditioned to be. So um, being, being able to go back out into the world as whoever it is that you want to be, you know, so it's, it's like, it's making, it's creating the possibility that somebody can actually reconnect with their hopes and dreams as a young person before these things happen to them. Yeah. And that they can actually do it. I mean, we have people who never left their home, 
you know, had, had, you know, kids, had a partner and, you know, just had this very narrow restricted life and they're going to concerts again, they're back in college, they're getting jobs, they're out in the world. It's, it's a completely different um, existence from, you know, before we started working with them. Yeah. I would love to talk to you about the future and how you envision, we've talked a lot about suffering and I was thinking as you were just making that statement about historically, right? Like I, I'm biased. I personally think this is one of the great sources of potential hope for our civilization mm-hmm. as time moves forward. And you think about all of the suffering of people in history who didn't have a medicinal option for trying to work through things that were truly crippling them. Mm-hmm. They tried to talk it out. They tried to work it out and they just couldn't. Mm-hmm. It was impossible or too difficult for them to do so. You know, as time moves forward, and let's put a optimistic slant on this, that we stay rational, the government stays rational, this begins to percolate in the culture. It, it, it becomes more wide, widely available for people who have PTSD. If you're president or you are... Um, you know, painting the picture of how this medicine is used in the future, whether that's five years from now, 10 years from now, as the anxiety about using a substance uh, diminishes in the culture and more and more people are able to understand the truthfulness of how helpful this can be for so many um, sources of suffering, sources of human suffering. What do you think is the proper place for MDMA in America, in the world? You know, you have more exposure to s- witnessing the transformational effects of this drug than almost anybody. Um, how do you think it fits in in a sane world? Um, what, what's the place for MDMA in the future? Hmm. Well, I'm going to answer this a couple of ways. So... I grew up in um, a privileged place. I grew up in Palo Alto. Hmm. Um, But what I noticed as a kid early on is how much unhappiness there was around me, you know. And and it just, and it seemed like people were doing work that didn't, wasn't satisfying to them. And so I remember really distinctly around seven or eight going, boy, it would be so much nicer if people could actually do what they were meant to do instead of like all the social stratification. And it was just like a simple request. Like, can't we, can't people just be who they actually are and and get paid for what they are really good at or what they love to do? So fast forward to today, it's like, I think, wow. So MDMA, we know, uh, I have to be cautious there. MDMA, is based on our data to date is incredibly helpful for people with PTSD and we'll know. And so the results are incredibly promising. So in addition to that, I mean, we, so, well, let me back up a little bit. How do we, how did we even know that MDMA was good for PTSD? Because after they made it illegal in 1985, 
you know, up to up to that point, there they what did they guess? A hundred thousand doses had been given in a in in therapeutic settings, something like that. Some some astronomical number. Yeah. So then it went underground, and so so nineteen eighty five to then when what? So the first study was in two thousand, something like that. So there were all these people who then underground therapists who continued to work with MDMA. And their reports, anecdotally, told us that it was helpful for MDMA, for PTSD specifically. Mm -hmm. So we were informed by that community that this would be helpful. So what they also told us is it's actually really good for couples. Um, It's actually really good for individuals, personal growth and development. So to be able to begin to use these MDMA in this case, for some of those things, um, it's so, you know, when you talk with um, underground therapists about working with couples and you, you know, the couples that are actually in a lot of strife and really struggling, it's like they're able to actually see their partner's perspective in a genuine way. And they're actually able to express whatever their side of the issue is in a genuine way. And it might not mean that they actually stay together, but the probability is so much higher because they actually feel understood by one another. So the possibility of helping couples navigate um, the kind of normal part of just being human, that we, we get stuck and we get, you know, this, we get stubborn and, you know, we're unconscious and it's just hard and, you know, throwing kids and the stress and, um, and sort of help people navigate the world, their world specifically, um, so that they can be better at who they are is an, would be an incredible gift to society in, in the larger sense. Hmm. Um, so I'm hopeful, you know, I mean, the world is in, uh, it, it's a painful place. I mean, if I wasn't doing this work, I would, I mean, I feel like I'm part of a correction, a potential correction here. And it's, you know, can I, of course I would love to stop the trauma and abuse to begin with, but if I can at least, you know, nudge it on this this other end, you know, then at least I can sleep better. Um, And so my hope is that we can actually begin to look at these uh, medicines and these substances and begin to figure out what they're actually good for, what the risks are, what the benefits are, and, and have a, you know, a sober conversation about it, which is not what we have currently. Mm. You know, our, our government, um, it's, it's been a really painful disinformation campaign and it's we've really marginalized people who actually use medicines and when you look at the you know addiction is real i mean i don't it's absolutely real but it's not nowhere near the um the levels the percentages that we think of it that we're led to believe and it's you know roughly around 10% you know, whether you look at alcohol, where you look at any 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 kind of substances, it's it's somewhere around there. But people who use these substances that the government has said is are drugs of abuse or 
or illegal or dangerous and all these things. I mean, um, it's just not true. Hmm. I mean, yes, we need to be careful. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, for, we had years where we buried our head in the sands and in the sand and didn't do the basic research we needed to do so we could actually really understand this. Um, and so we've opened the world up with, with marijuana now, mm -hmm. which has been huge. Um, you know, the government said that was, you know, schedule one, uh, drug, no medicinal value. I mean, that's, you know, that's contrary to thousands of years of history. And we're actually really beginning to discover all these things that it's actually helpful for. Yeah. And so, if we can get past this place of being punitive to people who use substances, it would be really helpful. Yeah. Um, so, let's talk about today. I know this we're winding down the conversation, and I, I want to just go over a few more things with you before we end. Um, for people who have heard this conversation, know a little bit about the work that people like you are doing. And it really resonates. They really want to get involved. I think you you said, you know, that you, you feel like you're part of a correction, you know, mm -hmm. in a very painful world. For people that want to be a part of that too, mm -hmm. you know, uh, maybe specifically as a therapist doing work that you do, what's the best first step? What's the, what's the process that they would need to go through? As you mentioned, MAPS is trying to scale up over the next few years. Yep. What can they do to, to get involved? Well, the first piece is to do your own work. Get to know yourself. That's the most important thing. Because, you you know, the beauty of this work is that I have I get to be completely honest. <laughs> so somebody will ask me a question, a participant will ask me a question. If I'm not honest with them, they'll, they know in an instant, yeah. especially if they have MDMA in their system. <laughs> and so it's so having experience in life is fundamental to being, from my standpoint, being really good at, as a therapist. Hmm. Um, the second step is we actually don't know what the um, certification requirements will be post-approval. Um, we, And so the conservative route or the more predictable route is have some experience with um, some training in therapy. So go to any of the schools that are out there that, that, that license, you know, prepare you for licensure in any state to mm. become a, a psychotherapist. Um, the third piece of the puzzle is then you would need to attend one of our, uh, trainings. So maps does now we do, or for next year, we're doing both in-person trainings and online trainings. <laughs> and so, um, and our, we have an online training that that's beginning actually in September. Um, of this year. So we have those trainings that are ongoing and, you know, we'll be, you know, into the future. So, and you have to be trained by us in order to do this work. Mm. And, you know, we're, we're getting criticized for that because, um, of the potential for, you know, having too much control, you know, for all the, all, all the right reasons. And my response to that is that, so maps, org is a 501c3. Then the pharmaceutical arm of MAPS, which is MAPS uh, B Corp, is a public benefit corporation. 
So they're required as a public benefit corporation to, you know, take whatever profits they make and provide it, give it back into the community. Yeah. So the, and you have to bear in mind that all of the research that we're doing has been raised by donations. We haven't gotten until Colorado gave maps some money to do um, a marijuana, uh, some marijuana research for, for um, vets. Um, we hadn't received any government funding whatsoever. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's been, it's all by, you know, donation. <laughs> and so to have then the possibility of a, a funding source for future uh, to look at these different substances so that we can actually figure out in a very sober, clear way what the risks and benefits are is really important in terms of for society to make a decision about whether we should have these things or not. Yeah. Um, and so... So if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, if you feel called to do it, if you feel like you've yes. gotten to know yourself well enough that you really want to participate... You both need to be an accredited therapist or psychotherapist and do MAPS training in order to qualify? Yes. And we also want you to have experience working with people with trauma. Hmm. So that's another um, that's another part of the requirement. Um, and so, yeah. 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 And so it's, you know, right now, they're the only places that you can actually do MDMA-assisted therapy legally is within one of our studies. Yeah. And we have all the therapists we need, so that's you know not an option at, you know, for at this point. Um, and so more it's waiting for, you know, getting prepared. So, you, you know, so if you're interested, two and a half years, yeah. get into a graduate program, do your work, your personal work, mm. get, you know, do some work, get some experience working with folks with, with trauma. And... Uh, that's a really important ground. Yeah. And to be educationally accredited, it that specifically means a grad degree in therapy itself with the experience working with people with trauma. Is that correct, roughly speaking? Yeah. I mean, in Colorado, there's a, uh, you can be licensed as a counselor, which doesn't require a grad degree. Hmm. So each state has their own kind of um, licensing practices. Um, and so you'd really, ha and so, and we defer to the, you know, the states determine that. And then, you know, if the state says that you're certified or licensed to do therapy, then we accept that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Last question I want to ask you is, I guess before I do that, I, I, I just want to mention how much personally, um, and I don't have any experience with this at this point. But I have a lot of admiration for people like you and a lot of admiration for people and organizations that work within MAPS because I, I'm personally persuaded that, you, I think you said it correctly, uh, you said it well, that you know there's a lot of pain in this world. And it's you would hope we live in a world in which there are mechanisms by which that can be significantly mitigated or eliminated. And it appears that those we do appear to live in, in a world like that. Mm -hmm. um, and all the work and the courage and the persistence that has led to now, and obviously it isn't over, but it seems to me that um, the work that's been done has been, will be well worth it 
over time, hopefully. Um, so thank you for what you do. Uh, in addition yeah. to just the time of sharing all the information you have today, um, would love to get you. We've talked about so many topics during this conversation, and I, I would love to just give you the floor as we end to really address anything else related to this work that you think is relevant, whether it's misconceptions in the culture that, uh, need to be corrected stigmas that need to be outgrown, um, anecdotes that you've experienced or know about that you think are important for the public to be aware of that. Um, yeah, I, I guess I'd leave it at that and just sort of give you, you've, you've done a lot of interviews as well. So questions you wish you would have been asked in previous conversations that you never really got to address anything related to that. Oh my God, that's big. <laughs> hmm. So for those of, of, of you who are skeptical, trust your skepticism. That's, it's completely valid. And, but explore it, go deeper into it. And, um, I know for myself, I've gone, I go, I've gone in my life, I've gone to, from, you know, from the state of thinking that drugs are bad to thinking that they're fine to like going, well, wow, some of them are really incredibly helpful drugs, meaning drugs that the, the, our government has deemed, um, drugs of abuse. And so, to to go deeper into what we've been told about these substances and and find out um, and really question that, um, but mostly to trust your instincts because that's a, such an important part of ourselves that kind of tends to get lost because we defer to people in authority and we 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 uh, habitually do that or we're told that you know by um, we're just often told what to think, and that's and that's actually not particularly helpful in the long run. Um, I I'm hugely biased in a sense because I think that what I'm doing is really normal. <laughs> I mean, I I actually don't get it sometimes that that because I'm so much in the middle of it. I mean, I, like I, so because of my work, because I do supervision, because I do training, because I do clinical work, I get supervision. And my supervisor is not into this stuff at all. <laughs> and he reminds, he goes, Bruce, you know, you're really, this is fringe. And I'm going, huh? Are you serious? And he's right. And so it's hard for me to see this place that I'm in <laughs> because it just seems so normal to me. And so, um, I know that it's, and so I have to try to think outside of that place. And that's really hard for me to do that. Mm. Um, and I'm completely happy to talk to people who absolutely fundamentally believe that this is not the, this is not a good idea. Mm. Um, I think that that dialogue is really important and yeah. I'm, I welcome those conversations. Um, so, so I think, you know, so I guess what I'm, I, I'm speaking to is, is having these dialogues with people that think differently than me is so important. And so that's another, you know, piece that I would want people to do. You know, we, you know, we have that in so many areas of our life, how we're 
kind of politically segregated in these, you know, pockets of red and blue and purple. And it's like, but we, you know, so I guess another piece of it is really to look for people who have experiences where it has actually changed their lives. Because that personal relationship is so important in terms of helping to inform us or helping to kind of get past our radar. I know that um, it certainly helped me in in lots of different situations where knowing somebody um, who was going through something that was just like really different than me, to actually be able to hear about their experience, it really helped has helped me to learn so much and expand my views. I mean, I was pretty square. I mean, I'm pretty traditional. Um, For for a lot of my life, I mean, my father was an engineer. Uh, You know, it's like, you know, things were like, you know, pretty, pretty, you know, square in that way. And so um, that's... So having, you know, having personal experiences that way really helped me to develop and better understand other people, um, which is, you know, from my standpoint, been the hallmark of my focus. I mean, as I mentioned before, I grew up in, in Palo Alto, which is a, you know, it's a very privileged, um, well-resourced community. Um, and for me, I made the decision to to pursue actually being in kind of trying to learn from people through real life experiences as opposed to from an academic approach. Mm. So I feel like that's where I've really focused my life on kind of humanizing myself in contrast to kind of my ideals to help me navigate living in this world. Yeah. Um, let's see. I really love doing this work. It's it's it, for me personally. It's really changed my life and helped me to practice with myself unconditional positive regard, loving kindness. Um, you know, because I get in sessions, I get triggered, and um, and so it doesn't ha- you know it happens, but and. There was, you know, one time where I actually had to step out of the room because I, I, in this one situation, I couldn't hear one more story, one more example of this, how this person had been sexually assaulted, sexually trespassed upon. I, like, just reached my limit, and in that moment, I thought, I think I'm broken. I think, I think I've reached my limit here. Like, I've heard a lot of stories. And for some reason, this one just stopped me. And so, you know, one of the nice things about having a co-therapist is I could say, you know, excuse me, I need to step out. Yeah. And, uh, and so I went into the other office and just, you know, broke down and, and just said, I just cannot hear one more story about this. And I just thought, okay, I'm done. But in, you know, in, and fortunately another therapist was in there and, and, you know, we talked and, and I was able to find my way, just like to have the experience of like being completely overwhelmed by this and feeling that feeling of being broken and trusting it. And it's and I've learned that from sitting with people, asking them to do the same thing. <laughs> and so asking them to trust that part of them that feels broken, that part of them that they don't like, 
that part of them that gets them in trouble because, you know, it gets triggered or that part of them that just, you know, hates themselves. To really actually trust that part and to bring it into the fold. Um, and so the work is life affirming is all is probably the how I would leave it. Yeah. I can completely understand why you would love love what you do because it must be extremely rewarding. I think the anecdote uh, observation you made is a good one that to seek out people who have been transformed or that may have some experience with this of it helping. And for those who don't have a connection directly to someone, I, I this was a documentary that I found enlightening um, called Trip of Compassion, which right. is a, to my knowledge, is the only documentary with you know that people can visually see of these type of sessions going on it was in Mm -hmm. israel Mm -hmm. um right but i would just note that for for anyone that might be interested in in seeking that out and watching it um this has been a real pleasure and uh i've been wanting to meet you for a long time and i i want to again say thank you for you know letting me into your house and sharing all this and talking um i admire what you do and i hope you keep doing it a long time yeah. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate Thanks. it. It's my yeah. pleasure. Yeah, mine too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show. 